Welcome to the Trust Your Coach Gut Podcast. We're up to episode number seven now, and uh, I've had a couple coaches, uh, a couple professors on, um, someone in the professional sports world. You know, this has uh, been an interesting journey. Uh, today, we go another direction. I've got Dr. Maureen Edwards who has been in public education, uh, specifically as a special ed leader uh, for almost 30 years. Uh, she's she's an author now. She's out of active uh, teaching and, and being an administrator, um, but she's an author now, has written an incredible book called It Is What It Is, which <laughs> I think we all know uh, when you get to a point and that phrase comes out, you've got a story to tell. So, um, I was really, really, it was so, just so cool to talk to Maureen for a couple of reasons. Mo, she she went to school with me at Catholic U and was also a college athlete. She played tennis and um, was a really cool classmate. And I thought, uh, you know, following her success in the world of public education, that she would be a really great person to talk to. She's got a doctorate uh, in education, specifically uh, leadership. So that fits right in with what we're doing here on this podcast, uh, looking at common sense leadership, which there's nothing has to be more common sense than when you're dealing with kids with special needs. Um, and I, I believe that. So uh, take a listen. Enjoy this podcast with Dr. Maureen Edwards and um, listen to her. And, and and I guess you'll have to listen to me if you listen to her. So you're stuck with that. But she's got some really great stuff to say. And um, I, I was just had a great time catching up with her. So. Um, have a listen and remember to uh, subscribe or follow um, the podcast wherever you get it from so that you know when more episodes are coming out. So have a listen to Dr. Mo Edwards. Hi, Dr. Edwards. Awesome to see you. Thank you so much. Uh, it feels almost weird to call you Dr. Edwards, but we're, we're on a podcast, so I want to do that. But Mo, it's great to see you. How are you? I'm wonderful, Mike. Thank you for the opportunity. It's fantastic to see you too. Yeah. Well, you know, as I started doing this podcast and I started talking to people, I'm like, you know, there are so many people that went to school with us that have done great things. And I don't think um, many are in your category though, of what you've done for special ed and um, you know, writing a novel and the things you've done. So I was like, man, I gotta get, I gotta get Dr. Mo Edwards on the Trust Your Coach Gut podcast so we can talk some stuff through, but it's Thank really you. good to see you. It's wonderful to see you. I'm honored. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, okay, let's jump right in. Let's talk about, so how many years were you in the education system directly and Tell me about what you were doing when you were there. Sure. I was in education since graduating Catholic, actually. Um, I uh, 25 years. I started teaching three-year-olds outside of, you know, outside of Catholic. And then I taught every age from three to adult. Um, I started, I was in the public school system for, you know, about 22, 23 years. I started uh, as a language arts teacher and then went to, and then went to um, child study team because I, uh, as I kept teaching kids, I kept going to school at night um, because as I kept teaching students, I realized that I didn't know enough to help them learn. So I kept going to graduate school for really to focus on helping them with disabilities and helping them learn better. Um, so I went from classroom teacher to a child study team member which uh, my role was a learning consultant. So I tested children for disabilities. And then um, I became, I, I segued into being an administrator for special education. So, um, and as I kept learning and learning and learning and, and kept working and working, I knew, I knew enough to know I needed to know more. So again, I continued to teach all the time at, during the day. And then I went to graduate school at night um, and then in 2007, I graduated with my doctorate from Fordham in administration, leadership, and policy, and um, became a director of special education in um, New Jersey. So, and I was honored to 
you know, work with the families with students with disabilities and I loved it. And, um, you know, and then fast forward now, I, I few years took, you know, I took a, some time to write a book about teachers and, and uh, what they do in school. Okay, so how many degrees and certificates do you have now? Like you have, you <laughs> got have, a lot of letters after your name. I do. Um, I have about, you know, Catholic University elementary education. Then I uh, went to Columbia University Teachers College for a degree in developmental and educational psychology. And then um, as I kept working with students more and more, I really wanted to hone in on special education. So I went to New Jersey City University for a master's degree in special education and a certificate as a learning consultant so I could be on a child study team. And then when I was on the child study team for a few years, I was you know, working with the administration closely as one does when they're on a child study team. And they asked me to get a supervisor certificate. So I went to another school to get an administration certificate and um, finally I became a, a supervisor in, in one district of special education. And then I said, you know what, I either go for a master's or I do what I always wanted to do. And my dream was to have my doctorate. And so I applied to Fordham, I was blessed to get in. And three years later, I uh, wrote my dissertation on special education leadership and uh, then moved to a, a bigger district, a K-12 district which had about four or 5,000 students. And I was in charge of, uh, you know, special education, the program, uh, you know, and, and implementation of the program for the district. So I, I, I loved every minute of it. That's, I mean, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of school. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, I, but I mean, that's because you had passion for what you're doing. I mean, just seeing that you wanted to be excellent at it. And so you weren't afraid to like keep digging in and learning and I think that is so key. Like to me, people that are leaders are always interested in uh, continuously learning and then what are the best practices, Correct. you know? And I think that is so important, especially in special So tell me, like there's a high burnout in special ed teachers and, and educators in that area. How did you lead the group when you were a supervisor? Like what did, like what, what was, how did you get them to be excited about their job day in and day out? It's difficult. I, I, I hope I did in some ways in reflection. I, um, I always had a, a teamwork philosophy. I, I really focused on um, pretty much what I learned being a tennis player, being, being, you know, being part of a team back in the day and, you know, creating a high morale, you know, you need to listen to each other. You, you need to, give everyone the tools to succeed. Um, quite often, if I walked into a classroom or if I walked into some, you know, some room and people needed something, I would try to actively listen and implement as soon as I could. Um, I'm very um, time sensitive with everything to, to a fault. And I'm also very reflective because of a lot of training that I've had um, in, with, my mat, with, the, with the degree from Catholic, we were very reflective as teachers, they taught us to think about things good and bad. How could you change things? And that reflective practitioner mentality, I tried to implement in, in every job I had and every role I had. Um, it's very hard because there's a delicate balance of following the law and, and staying in line with what is free and appropriate education for a student. Um, I loved all my families. I loved, I call them my, but um, you know, I, the children were wonderful. But if, if a teacher or child study team, or if somebody needed something, I tried to step up as quickly as I could and resolve an issue as fast as I could so that they knew they were being heard. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think, I, I hope I, I was able to accomplish that. And I also knew, I also had a wonderful collaboration, a teamwork mentality with other people. You know, special education directors work hands in hand with principals, superintendents, um, teachers day to day, parents day to day. So you're almost a liaison amongst everyone. You touch everyone, paraprofessionals. Yeah. So if, if people, if you keep hearing, um, for example, if you keep hearing, you know, I can't help, I don't know what to do for a child, child with a, a, a reading disability. Well, what can we do about it? So, 
you know, I, I worked with colleges, local colleges to bring in um, different types of reading programs to help train the teachers. You want to give them the tools to make them succeed. And um, I hope I did that. I tried to do that as best as possible and, and also foster teacher leaders. Um, you know, Mike, you, you as a coach, you know, you, you can't know <laughs> yeah. defense, offense, you can't know everything. So I tried to, um, tried to, you know, if teachers wanted to go back to graduate school or if they wanted to go back for a degree and they came for, to me for, uh, you know, a uh, reference letter, I would sit them down and I'd write it right away. You know, good, wonderful, keep, keep going. You know, encouraging them to keep pursuing things, learning things and, um, or, and creating opportunities. So you said a couple things in there that I wanna kind of like get back to. Like one, the talking about empowering the teachers that work, that work for you and with you. Like, uh, you know, as a coach, I know there's, like I can do something or I can tell someone to do it or I can tell them how to do it or I can tell them what the goal is and ask them how they want to do it. And it's taken me a long time to learn the best way for me to do it is to tell them the goal and then ask them how they want to do it and let them go with it. And it sounds like that the, the, the way you encouraged a lot of your teachers to go back and get more educated if they wanted and then to offer them tools like that just, you know, that makes that makes somebody feel like somebody's invested in them and that makes you want to get up and go to work the next day, you know? Right. And so. these are very difficult jobs. You know, it's high intensity, high needs. Uh, you know, some of the teachers, um, I mean, we, in New Jersey, we have a high rate of autism. So we had very, we had, I mean, they taught me something every day. I always felt like I was a team member with them. I really never felt like, it was a hierarchy. I always tried to, you know, I, I was just, I was basically just a liaison in my mind to making sure that that child got what they needed um, as per the, you know, as per the IEP and, and set them. I tried to take the stressors of other things. Like, you know, it may sound little, but you know, um, you know, they don't have enough books. They don't have, this, these are huge issues. If you don't have the materials, well, I was responsible. Let's get them. Let's, you know, let's, let's do that. And I, I tried to hear things and, um, but, but also just being present and physically present as well, hands-on, you know, open door. Um, I think that's important too. I, I would get in early. I'd leave late. You know, I always was, yeah. I, you know, my, my, favorite, yeah, my favorite part of the day was sitting in a classroom with the teachers and the kids. It wasn't, you know, doing budgets or, or writing reports. <laughs> no, budgets are no fun. I don't care yeah. how, I don't care if it's your home budget or work budget, budgets are no fun. I know, but you know, sitting in the classroom and seeing what, seeing them in action, you know, it gives you life. It makes you, it makes you realize, you know, these people are rock stars. How can I help them foster that more? Right. And that, I can just hear like the excitement and passion as you talk about it. And so I know for me, like, nobody wants to be on a coaching staff where they're where people walk in and, and there's a phrase in coaching it's like oh we got to stay on the grind stay on the grind you know what I, i'm not a big fan of that phrase because it, like it, sure there's hard work but you know what like hard work's a blessing and if you look at it different if you look at it that way it's and, and yeah sometimes it's a grind that's great but but there is there's a reward in the work ethic and there's no substitute for it and teachers have, like people have this, I know I say people, people outside of education have a concept sometimes that, oh, well, they show up at seven and they're done by three. And I have yet to meet a teacher that didn't spend their own money to like help out the classroom, that wasn't busy after they took care of their own family in the evenings. And then like, I mean, it, what happens is, yes, you're at the time that you're in school is from then to then, but if you really care about your job, you really never punch out of the clock. Like you punch in, but you never punch out. Correct, correct. And it's funny, the, the saying, uh, oh, you have your summers off. The irony is that the summers were always more, more, more busier than, than, the, than practically the whole school year because the summers when we were you know, doing a lot of programming for the students and getting everything prepared for the next year. So um, yeah, 
I think I think a lot of misconceptions about teachers and, and educators in general is, you know, it's an easy job. Um, I, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember reading some of the, you know, Twitter and, and, you know, on Instagram, all these famous people saying, you know, teachers need to be paid millions of dollars after one day. And uh, <laughs> it, it's true. I mean, they, you know, you, the, the value of teachers is, is, is really, you know, how extraordinary they are. And the talent pool out there is extraordinary. I, I've seen it firsthand. And um, it's, it's, they've taught me more, you know, it was, it was a great learning experience for me. And I, you know, I always learn something every day in the classroom with the, with the teachers. So, man, yeah, there's no doubt. The, the people that have their boots on the ground doing the job are the ones that can give insight and, you know, sort of peek behind the curtain on how things should be and what they can do to improve it. And um, so many times I think you can get into the academic setting and lose sight of what is that challenge today? You know, what are they facing today? And so the pandemic gave a huge, uh, a huge exposure to that. Like, this is what they handle. This is what they're doing because it, it fell into everybody else's lap because for a, a really long time, the kids weren't in school. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, and, and just having to teach on Zoom and having to learn and, and, and modify everything. I mean, God bless them all. It's not, it, not, no, nothing, that's not great. Nothing so I, I can't imagine with the amount of regulation in special ed um, and having had a son who, who had spent some time with an, uh, an extensive IEP and the meetings you have to have, I don't know like how, how it was done without in-person education and um, I tell you what, why don't you talk to us about like, how do you walk that line between the regulations you follow and then meeting the needs of the students and their families? I mean, you have to have some great examples of like when you were, without mentioning names, we don't want to violate any, any laws, any FERPA, but, uh, but like you have to have some great stories about walking that line of when did you know that there was, you didn't go outside the rules, but you had to do something extra. Um. I, I think, you know, again, you listen to the people that are with the children every day. You listen to, you, you actively listen and, and rely on people's expertise to say, you know what, we need this, we need that. Uh, we, need, we need to know more about this. We need to know more about that. And, um, you know, and then network, talk to other districts, talk to other people in other districts, what are they doing? Um, and, and I was fortunate, I had amazing colleagues in special education who I could call 24 seven and say, you know, I, I, you know, what do you think about this? Do you know anybody that could help us with this or enhance the education this way or, or do this? And, you know, there are just so many people in, in different niches within special education and in all education, you, you have to find the people, you know, there are behaviorists, there are, um, there are speech and language like there's different people that could potentially you know it's all about brainstorming i think and trying to fix or or address i should say any potential you know concerns that 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 come up um but you have to you have to think and 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 you have to look into you know i most a lot of my job is really communicating with peers you know colleagues and saying, well what do you do how can i do what could i do here you know um or, or where is the line? What is the law? Um, you know, it's a, it, you know, it's a, a delicate dance. It's a delicate dance. Yeah, just like anything that I'm sure the legislation came to be because they saw a need to, to make sure that needs were being met. But sometimes that becomes so constraining on the educators in their environments. I just remember like every IEP meeting I went to, I was handed a booklet on my rights. You know, I mean, I could have wallpapered my entire living room with the number of books. And I'm like, I don't want the booklet. I know, like I've read it, unless something changed. Like it's, you know, and, but, but in the same time, if they don't do that, and then a parent comes back, you know, which they might say, well, I didn't know that I could have asked for this, or I didn't know I could have done that. Then like the amount of, um, liability for the school district is is unbelievable you know well, we always updated everybody you know there were there were updates constant updates you know um 
my, it's ironic, my, my dissertation was on compliance, you know, special mm -hmm. education compliance, which changes, it's a moving, moving, you know, situation all the time. There's different rules, different laws. Um, but that's the nature of education in general for everybody, you know, there's different, there's different um, rules that are, that are changing, especially now, you know, with, with, I mean, every day there's something different, what you can or can't do socially, and, and you know, with, with everything. So on a, on a micro level in a school, you know, you just, you just have to stay on, on top of, of what you need to, what you need to do to make sure that everybody is aware of any changes. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, you, you focus on, you focus on what you know, and you, you do the best you can to maintain that high level of compliance um, based on what, what the directives are. It, and I think that, you know, that's, that's probably globally across industries, but because in education, there's, um, there's kids and families and there's so many stakeholders spread out that have an entryway into the experience that like, it becomes magnified. We're like in coaching yeah, a little bit, you know, nobody, well, I take it back. A lot of people want to know why I didn't run a certain blitz on third and 15, you know, okay, fine. But like, but you know, they can, people can be upset about it and do those things. But, but with, uh, you know, say a special education teacher who has, who's responsible for maybe 60 children and they have to know the, the ins and outs of every kid's life. If, I mean, if they're going to, if they're going to care for them in a way that is that, and it help them educate and progress, they have to know what the home life is like, who cares for this kid? How do I motivate them? What are their specific issues? And it's not like everybody has, it's not like they separated by, oh, well, here's all our people that have auditory learning problems. Here's all our people that have this learning problem. You can't sort of split them out. So in a classroom, you may have someone who, who like, who doesn't read well because they're dyslexic or something like that. Then you have, or, you know, further complications beyond that. And then you have somebody who has processing disorders. And then you've got another person who is like, um, you know, who's, who's ADHD to the level that they need to have Velcro under the desk so they can rub their fingers on it while they're sitting there. You know, I mean, people don't even, I, I, I know I never thought about that until I started learning more about, about the situation through having a son who went through it. And, um, and, and that's one reason I want to talk to you is this, this incredible experience you've had with, with people don't, I'm not sure they get this peek behind the curtain and see what's going on day in and day out. So that's why when you wrote the book, uh, your novel, it is what it is, was so cool. I mean, it's like you took a lot of what you went through and and filtered it and then made it in a story that you could read, which I I think is a chance for everybody to feel what a teacher feels as they go through it. Um, well, you know, thank you. That, that was the goal. The I mean, in the middle of the book, like was you talking about the experience, like what what was what was the hardest part to write as you were putting it together? Well, wait, maybe I should back up and ask you, give a, because not everybody's going to have read the book that's listening. Yeah. Give me a quick, quick synopsis on what the book was, and then we'll, we'll get back to it. Thank you for reading the book, Mike. Thank you. And yeah. you know, you know a ton about special education, so kudos. Um, you, I can learn a lot from you. Um, the book is, is about a first year teacher who has struggles in and out of the classroom. She's a general education teacher, and she has an in-class support teacher who's a special educator, um, speaking of special education. And, and what I, the goal of the book was to really, just like you said, have people understand further exactly, almost like the day-to-days of, of what a teacher experiences these days, because you and I didn't have that when we were little, at least, you know, and even, even when I student taught down at Catholic, I, we didn't have push-in services. We didn't have, like, we, we didn't have, I, we didn't have that kind of, I didn't know that I didn't get trained for all of that. Um, so I really wanted people to understand, you know, this is the role of a special educator. This is the role of a general educator. Um, the school nurse is vital in a lot of situations with students with special needs and, and in the general population as well. Um, and then you have building principals and assistant building principals and their wealth of knowledge and running, running a whole, uh, you know, a whole school. So the, the goal was really, and thank you, uh, was really to, to give, give a sense a little bit about the day in and day outs of, of how hard teachers work. And again, I'm biased, 
but this is how hard teachers work and, and teachers wanna do a great job with their students. And, and it's a continual, um, it's a continual, continual day. It's not a not, you know, eight, seven, whatever, eight, eight to three job. Um, what was the hardest part about writing the novel was just honestly cutting it back. I, I, I you know, once I started writing, I, I could, I, I had so many different scenarios that I could have offshoots um, that I had to cut it down a little bit and focus more on only one particular character in one particular situation. Um, but, you know, hopefully, you know, if I can, you know, if I write further, further, I would explore other stories about um, educators, uh, you know, because really there's, there's thousands and thousands of stories, you know, you could, the building principal has a fa fascinating background potentially, or the school nurse, you know, there's, there's so many different roles in the building that people are not aware of, unless you're a dad or a mom or, or a family member who's, who's needed these kind of supports, you really may not know about any of these people. So that's really why. Yeah. I the book. There's, uh, it, it's funny because it, uh, I occasionally, not occasionally, well, up until the pandemic regularly would go into schools to talk to recruits that were trying to get to come to the team. And that there is, like there's the world that 90% of people operate in outside of schools. And then there's a inside the school world. And as an adult outside of like public education, you don't even think about like what the rules are in school. You have, you have rules for when you go into an office, you have rules for this, there's, there's an environment operating thing. Then all of a sudden you step into a school and what it's become, you know, I remember the days where I used to be able to just take, like sneak up to the back door where the coach's office was and go in and say, hey coach, let's sit down and talk. Now I might find a, a you know, a resource officer drop his gun on me if I'm trying to come in the back door. <laughs> like it's completely different environment and, and for good reason. Like, I mean, I hate it's the part of the world that we're in, but there's this whole microcosm of operating inside a school that unless you're in that environment, you have no idea of the constraints and the day-to-day -day operating ins and outs that are required uh, from getting into the building to making sure that all the kids are there and, you know, when problems arise, how do you deal with it? So, you know, it's funny, you're talking about what we had growing up. You know, I went to St. Patrick's parochial school in Bedford, New York, loved it. And we had wonderful nuns. They were the sisters of charity. Um, unfortunately, I was on the receiving end of sort of traditional Catholic redirection, yes. um, you know, and yes. Sister Madeline was the best. She taught religion class and I smiled during class one day and, and, and was not at the moment she wanted someone to smile. And, uh, you know, so like those, but you know, I was a kid that that worked for me, <clears throat> but I do remember, <clears throat> excuse me, I do remember that they also, because we had some kids in the class that were not, uh, that had different needs. And the nuns knew it and the other teachers knew it and they were able to accommodate them without some of the um, like the, the legislation that's in place for other students. And I think a lot of private schools like that, but I'm not sure all the private schools today have the resources that the public schools do to handle a lot of these special needs. No, they don't. They get a little funding support from the, the, the townships. Um, but they don't. And, um, you know, my, my experience, the reason why I got into education um, was, you know, I, I went to a, a, a Catholic grammar school and a Catholic high school. Um, and, you know, I was in a, a grammar school classroom. I never forgot it. In seventh grade, there was a row of brilliant kids, a row of okay kids, and a row of kids that were just so-so. And you knew what row you were in, you knew <laughs> what color book you had. And if you weren't in that smart row, you didn't get, you know, you really didn't get, you had seat work the whole time. And I remember sitting in that classroom to be truthful. And I said, I will never, I want to be a teacher and I never want a child to feel the way I feel right now, because I want to try to do that higher level work. I want to try to do 
you know, the, the algebra or, you know, but I was not in that row for whatever reason, um, no matter how hard I worked, you know, it's probably because you were a good athlete. So they just assumed you couldn't be in that row. That's why. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> but I mean, I have to say being a student athlete taught, I mean, I can say I, I can multitask. I can, I can budget my time extremely well because at Catholic, you know, I, I taught, I was, I was, uh, you know, tennis all four years and, you know, in an education major that whole time. And I would go from teaching to the, the gym, the gym, you know, to the match. I mean, when I think back, I mean, I can't believe how much time management we had to do as a full-time athlete, as, as a student athlete, and then still make good grades. Um, but we did. And now, Moving forward, I, you know, in reflection, you know, before speaking with you, I thought, wow, being a student athlete taught me really had to do a lot in as much time, but like very time sensitive, let's say, you know, time is, is of essence. So. Yeah, there, you definitely, I think, learned that uh, other students might be able to say, oh, I'll get to that tomorrow. But when you knew you were, you were booked, you're like, okay, if I have an hour here, I have to get to work on that. Exactly. And um, and that helped, I think that sunk some student athletes faster, but yeah. it also taught them. So, uh, it was one of those things that sort of threw you into the fire and you found out if you could handle it or not pretty quickly. And I like that there was people that it would help you with it. And I think nowadays there's even more, uh, support and people understanding that if like, you don't want to just say, okay, go, you know, you want to be like, okay, this is how you do it. And we're going to support you until you know and and as you show you can handle it we're going to slowly pull back and slowly pull back slowly back i mean i'd like to think that's what we do it now um but it still requires a tremendous like you have to as a student athlete you have to say no to a lot of things that other college students get to say yes to True. Um, and if you and if you don't you one of those two things you either won't be an athlete very long or you won't be a student very long so it's very true because you know it's funny, even though we were in D, you know, DC for four years, often people say, oh, did you go to this museum or that museum? I'm embarrassed to say I really didn't take advantage of DC as much as I wanted to, because I was always, we were going to matches and, you know, we're, you know, we were going to matches all the time. Right. Um, or, or just trying to, you know, keep with the pace of, of the workload. So, um, but it, it was a great experience and, uh, you know, it definitely, even even when I was in graduate, so I mean, I taught full time and I went to graduate school full time. So the minute I would get the syllabus, I would jump ahead to see what I could do as soon as possible to bang it out, you know? Right, right, right. It's, it's all, yeah. The foundations are there. So thinking about some of those changes, what what do you see is like, what's, is there any difference between the kids you worked with at the beginning of your education or education career and closer to the end, or the flip side of that is what was different in you from the beginning to the end, obviously lots of education, but what's changed? I think for, for me as an educator, my lens changed. I looked at, um, I, 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 the only way I can explain it is I used to look at, at really straight one-on-one teaching to the whole class and getting through the curriculum, because that's how I was trained as a teacher. You know, you look at your curriculum and you say, okay, I got to do X, Y, and Z and, and do a certain amount of things. Um, I, I, in reflection, I, don't, I didn't differentiate enough at the beginning of my career with the kids I had, because I had, you know, children that were reading and writing at a first grade level in the eighth grade. And so I really, I did the, I kind of, tried to help them as best as I could, but I wasn't, I didn't have the tools. And I would like to think that we try, and I, there was, there wasn't a whole lot of in-services to help us do that or help us better help the kids. I mean, we helped them as much as we could initially, but I think at the end of my career, I, I think we, I think at least where I was, we implemented a lot of professional development for teachers on an ongoing basis to target certain um, needs for certain students to, to try to enhance everyone's knowledge as a professional. So I would like to think that we learned more that way. And I think, um, I think the special educators, you know, in, this, in, in at the beginning of my career, the special educators were in a tiny little room, 
and I, and I hung out with the special educators in a tiny little room. Now the special educators are everywhere. So the presence is more hands-on. People can, it can ask, what, what, what do I do for this? What do I do for that <clears throat> to help with a child? Um, so I think that's different. I think, um, I think there's more regulation now. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I think, um, you know, teachers, you know, are required to support students better than when I did at the beginning of my career, I would hope. So I, I think that's where it's at. Um, there's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, there's a continuum of services too that are more structured than when I started. Um, you know, like I said, when we were little, when we were in grammar school, high school, everybody was taught the same way or you were grouped by a color. It was, it, it, you know, you, and now I think it's just, you know, lessons are thoughtful more, you know, right. let, let's have, let's have more groupings, more group work together with kids so that, you know, peers can help each other a little bit rather than just the teacher. Um, you the, you know, teachers are fostering learning rather than just being straight, you know, lecturing. Which okay. So that, so that, that, sorry to cut you off, but that jumps into something I think. Um, so in the world we live in today, with information on every device, you can have almost all the information you well more information than you need and or want available. I think the one of the differences I see, and and, I, and it's coming a little slower, maybe because everything's a little bit behind. But teaching uh, kids to sift through, like take information and determine what's applicable and how to use it, and then like what that means in their next step in development. And they've got all the, like, you don't have to, you and I used to have to memorize a certain amount of basic information to then be able to operate and problem solve. Correct. Now the problem solving is not so much knowing the information, it's knowing what's good information and what isn't. Very and true. yeah. And so like, how do, now how do teachers, I guess there's a lot of, you know, they talk about what's a reputable site, what isn't and all that. But at the same time, um, when it comes through a screen, when you, I don't, me as a person, when I read it, if I don't take time to assess the value of the information of who's telling me this, then everything would, uh, would seem to have the same value because it's coming through a screen, you know, yeah. like what, what are we doing in, in schools today to like help with that processing? I, you know, I think, I think what's happening now, and, and again, I've been out of the classrooms for a long, you know, for a little while, but I, technology is a whole other level of um, good and bad. You know, the, the good, obviously, you know, I, I, I've seen students that are nonverbal be able to speak with an iPad. You know, I see three-year-olds, four-year-olds being able to, um, have, have different learning styles because of technology, which is phenomenal. But like you said, um, how do they differentiate fact from fiction? You know, especially because social media, I think the social media aspect is, is very difficult. And I think we're still at the beginning phases of figuring out short and long-term effects of the social media component with kids. You talk to any kids, you know, the visual stimulation with all of the the information that they're, they're almost overstimulated. I think we all are. That's why I think right now everybody's just trying to see each other in person because we're tired of right. you know this. Yes. Um, but you know what are they doing? There's different you know teachers, and this has been an ongoing situation you know since the beginning of infusing technology into the classroom, having valid critical thinkers rather than just regurgitating information and spitting it back at you. Um, so there's, you know, the, I think that, you know, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, but you know, that's why I think there's a lot of projects based learning now where it's not so, okay, go look this up. It's okay, right. here's a project. We want you to create a website for blah, blah, blah. And you, you know, infuse all of this information. And it's, it's almost like higher level thinking skills rather than, um, you know, if I think if you ask somebody what's their phone number, they may not know it. 
but they might be they might be able to tell you you know something very high level and you're like oh my god you know because they're right. so to a higher level of of thinking um that that's the way a lot of education is has been going for a while group group work you know not everyone doing doing everything on their own you know people doing projects um so you know, at least that's how it was going but yeah to differentiate fact and fiction is becoming more and more, I think, of, a, of an issue. It is. And because I think one of my pet peeves is <clears throat> someone will get on and, you know, whatever social media platform it happens to be, and there's a rant and someone says, well, the science says this, and they'll pop one article up or this and that. And it's like, you know, unless you're going to take the time to go investigate something and, and look at what is the objective truth around these things? Like, don't don't tell me you're the expert unless now, if, if Dr. Maureen Edwards tells me in special ed, here's something that happened, I go, okay, that has value because of the person who spoke it to me, you know, who said it to me. Like that's where uh, I think a lot of in our, in our, and the pandemic really accelerated this, a lot of our interactions are, you know, um, you have people who are, constitutional experts on, on Twitter you got and then they turn around and they're they're pandemic experts and now they're vaccine experts and all this stuff going on and and I can just imagine if I was you know and I'm so number years old now I could just imagine if somebody who's 14 years old is getting this information they might establish a mental framework that is entirely erroneous without even realizing it until something down the line crashes into that. And that could be traumatic for kids. I think that's why it's good the kids are getting back into schools because there's gonna be right. more communication, um, more interaction, more dialogue, more debate, um, and more, more, I would hope more factual you know, discussion about their, their rights and, and what they believe. Um, I, I, you know, I never believe one person. I, I'm a research wonk. So uh, whether it's whether it's a philosophy or a teaching strategy or you know um, you know whether even if it's your, for your own health at this point you know it's I, again I come from a team teamwork type of philosophy that you know you have to assemble people that you trust and that know a lot of information and that you um, and a, and a multidisciplinary team whether it's anything that you you do. Um, whether it's being a teacher or an educator or uh, someone who has helped, you know, anything. Um, right. Yeah. You don't, you, you know, you can't, you need a bunch of different, a bunch of really smart people in the room to discuss their own expertise and try to make some semblance of it. If that makes sense. At least that's oh, it totally does. Yeah. It's like, I got to have an offensive coordinator. I have to have a defense coordinator, I have a special teams coordinator, you know, and then you have position coaches and I expect each one of them to be an expert in their area. Correct. And then we all come together and talk about how we put the best product on the field. Correct. And you're right. Same thing in healthcare. Like you want to have a multidisciplinary team when you're tackling something right. like um, you don't necessarily want your oncologist telling you about your heart health all the time, even though they'll know a certain amount, but you want your cardiologist telling you about your heart health. Exactly. You know, and uh, exactly. I actually, I don't want to talk to a cardiologist. I haven't moved in a long time, so I don't want to talk to any of them, but, <laughs> you know, yes. but, you know, you're right. The multidisciplinary thing helps you sift through what is. And I think letting like, like nobody wants a, I don't want um, the next generation to have PhD in TikTok. You know, I want them to like have, I want them to have heard from people who like you have studied and know the answers to the questions that they've been working on. They don't need to know the answers to the questions they haven't been working on, but if they have been working on, or at least to know the question that they should ask after the first question, you may not have the answers, but if you keep getting better questions, you'll eventually wind up at the answer. And at the end of the day as well, you know, today is June, you know, and it, things may change. Best practices, right. best practices change. I mean, when I was learning how to teach reading, um, it was whole language approach, meant, meaning, you know, children were supposed to assimilate all the words and learn from that. There were very little phonics was I trained with. And then over the years, it changed and it became more phonetically based. And, and you know, all of these all of these strategies kind of go cyclical. You know, they 
today it's this thing, tomorrow it's another thing. So even best, best practices change and you really need to, to get, get people that, you know, that are experts, but are also current on information. You know, I only know what I know as of, you know, today and, you know, it, it could change and it may change tomorrow. It, it could be the same as five years ago. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, you have to be current too. And I think that's, that, that hopefully students are learning that as well, that, you know, what, what we learned yesterday and even with the pandemic, what happens in March of last year and look at how far we've come in terms of knowledge in certain things, at least we hope, um, you know, and uh, so that we could all kind of, you know, continue to move on with our lives. No doubt about it. It's the, uh, the, the staying current on what's the best practices is, is like in, in football, it's changing. You know, you used to run certain drills. Now, you know what? That's not great. Let's, uh, let's find a way to reduce uh, head of contact. Let's find a way to do this. And it all, it all helps them improve. But what, what you find is, okay, we make a change. You take the results from that change. And then you say, okay, that didn't produce the product we're looking for. How do we change the change? And right. that's usually where you make some traction. Right, right, exactly. And, yeah. and you know, a lot of times uh, what you were just saying uh, just hit a, hit a chord. You know, when we were in college a few years ago as student athletes, <laughs> um, I, we were doing, you know, we were running all the time. We were doing, but I never lifted weights. And I see kids now in the gym, you know, it, 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 in high school lifting weights and I thought, oh, I wish I knew more about that in high school. Maybe, you know, it, it's just, it seems, and even the nutritional component for, for children, students, athletes, you know, it's, it's great to have a nutritionist as, as you, know, it, you know, just chatting with them about what to eat the right way to, to continue to be healthy. Um, you know, it's just, you gotta keep up with current and, and the teams change a lot too. You know, your, your members of the, that team, you know, to stay current, you have to, continue to assemble people as you go. Right. Yeah. And bring people in as the need arises. And uh, exactly, you know, it's it as I've been a head coach now for a couple of years, I find that I, because I'm in the meeting room less and doing less direct football teaching, I need to make sure that I'm meeting with my team my, and my coordinators to keep me up to speed and to make sure that it matches my philosophy. Um, so even though there's a lot of great things out there, I'll have like, you know, say my defense coordinator comes to me and he's like, hey, I want to run this because I think this will be a great blitz. I, I have to say like, yes or no based on like, and there's times I'll be like, you know what? That doesn't really match our personnel or it doesn't match what I want to do. So that's not going to get incorporated. And I think that's that's the trick, isn't it? Like what what is the, like, what's the best practice that matches your goal, what you're trying to do? And that's that's where leadership comes in, I think. Um, you have to be willing to say, yeah, that's good stuff. Or like now, like, yes, it's still good stuff, but it's not for us. Right. And what you just, you just hit a nail on the head as well. Talent. You have to know who you have, you know, where if, you know, it's the same thing with football or, or sports in general, you know, and, and, and in education, you have, you have some talented teachers, for example, who are certified with reading or certified here and there, but they're teaching kindergarten. Well, let's move them. You know, let's let's right. sh sh you know shake things up a little bit. If if they're if they have a certificate that could help a group of students, let's move them. Let's put them in a place where they can make more of a difference or utilize their skills better. You know, it's very similar, and it's it's a you know it's an ebb and flow. You have to kind of figure out where you put them best situated. It's very similar. So, so how do you take a teacher who <laughs> thinks that they should be teaching reading to kindergarten first graders but you recognize their talent is probably closer to like fifth sixth or seventh but they don't see it yet how do you convince them do you just say nope you're going here or like what do you do so it all depends <laughs> <laughs> uh, again it's not just me it's a collaborative effort it's a, it's working with the principals it's working with uh you know really seeing the whole almost like seeing everybody's a big part of the puzzle and, and having a conversation saying, you know, listen, you are so good at this. We need someone here to enhance this particular classroom. Um, you know, the principal's behind it, but you know, everyone's behind it. What are your thoughts? 
sometimes it's a great conversation, Mike. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> Change is not easy for any, you know, for everyone. Um, but if you look at the, you know, if you look at the talent and, and, you know, I would like to think in retrospect, there were certain people that I worked with that, that you know, I moved um, because I saw something and, you know, initially were not happy. And then after a few weeks, they're like, yeah, 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 that, that was a good call or, or maybe they're not telling me the truth. But at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're using that, that skill with a group of students that need her to do that with them or him, you know, so. Um, right, right. And that, that's, and that, it's a big puzzle. So, so it is, it's a huge big puzzle. And a lot of times the person who is the puzzle piece you're trying to move feels really comfortable where they are, even though, and they're not willing to, like, not willing, they're, I should say, they're reluctant to see the other side of it. And that's like, for coaching, I think the worst part of being a coach, the, one of the worst parts, is talking to kids about playing time when they're going to get less. Yes. But on multiple occasions, I've reduced playing time for someone at their position or moved them to another position, and they become wildly more productive because we now recognize what their talent level is and where they should play. You know, a D lineman can't play 70 plays a game. You might take a guy who thinks he should because they all want to play, but if you let him play 30 plays a game, all of a sudden he's hell on wheels. And, you know, I mean, and the same thing with it, take a teacher that shouldn't be running a whole classroom, but might be a specialized reading instructor, instructor. And now you're watching kids make tremendous jumps because that's their talent level. Whereas that person had this vision of coming out of college. Oh, I'm going to be the classroom teacher. I'm going to be, you know, the, the um, what was the Sidney Poitier movie? Uh, where he was the teacher, um, goodbye, Mr. Something. I, I can't remember now, but like, you know, he was in front and he changed this whole classroom of kids to be wonderful. And like, everybody has that dream, you know, or a dead poet society, like they want to be that teacher. And sometimes that, that, that club isn't in your golf bag. Like you got to learn to play with the clubs you have. Exactly. I, I remember as a teacher, I taught middle school for a while. And then they, I, I was placed in a third grade class um, for probably four months, I was a maternity leave uh, replacement at the end of the school year. Oh, man. So that was the hardest. Now I'm going for, from middle school adolescence to third graders. And, you know, sure, absolutely. Bring it on. You know, I, I, I student taught with first graders. And I remember walking in, it was, it was probably March. And the, and the, the, every, the kids were so used to the schedule and they, and I walked in, it was the hardest experience I had as a teacher. Um, I always think back to that because I had to change my teaching and my organization to mold what they were doing. And it was, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. And, and I wasn't used to children that couldn't keep up walking with me. Like I had to have them in lines. <laughs> right. um, and it, years later, a friend of mine, she was getting moved from first grade to fifth grade. And she, after 10 years of that, you know, it's, it's not easy. And it's, a, it's, it could be very jarring. I said, yeah, but you're moving from first grade to fifth grade. The fifth graders don't need, you don't, you don't need to go to the bathroom with them. You don't have to look for their mittens. You don't have to do their zippers. And within a week, she loved it. And I was happy to hear that because, again, someone saw her talent. And to me, that's good leadership, you know, seeing right. someone's talent and, and enhancing. And it enhances everybody's life. Um, and sometimes change is a really good thing for people. Sometimes can be very, very yeah. Uh, invigorating. Yeah, change is one of those things where in the midst, even if it's something you chose, you can, and it, you, as you talked about a lot of reflection, you can look, you'd be reflecting on it and like, oh, is this what I want? But the only way you'll know is if you persevere. And I think that is the difference in, because yes, change isn't always good, but change, the, the, the uncomfortableness of any change can be good, even if the change itself wasn't good. Correct. Correct. That sounded kind of goofy, but I, I, like, no, I truly believe that. Yeah. I, I agree with you. There's, there's positive outcomes to major changes in, in, in anything. Yeah. Um, but I think also, too, you know, when you're addressing change with anybody, whether it's your, you know, your, your uh, players or a teacher or a paraprofessional or anybody that I was working with, um, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah. And I think a lot of times um, 
you know, I think that's been a major issue is, you know, the tone sometimes of, of leaders, you know. Um, so, so much with the tone, like, and, and not to cut, cut you off, I just was made me think, like, there's coaches on the field, and there's some coaches that, like, can dog cuss their players, and the guys love them. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's because they, they've seen that person has made them feel that they care in a way that matters to the players. Yeah. And then you get a coach who might not, you know, be as loud or as nasty or whatever. And, but they'll make one comment and it will cut the player deeply because they don't trust that coach, you know, and it's the same thing. I think in, in leadership roles and what we're doing is the, you're right. The tone in the way it's presented because if you don't have that equity with that person, if you haven't built up that relationship, you're going to have to be very careful in how you present that change or they're not going to be open to it. Right. No, not at all. Not And, and you have to have, uh, it, it's all, um, you know, that's why I loved, I loved being in education, no matter where I was or, you know, I was always around. I was always hands-on. I tried to be you know, no matter what, I was always, you know, try to be as visible as possible that I was part of their team. I was, I was part of a team. Um, and it, it, I think it helps when you have to have, you know, difficult discussions, uh, even when you're, it's, it's a, it's a, a good thing to have. Cause I'm, I'm very, it, when I had to say very difficult things to people, I would lose sleep a few nights before. Right. And, and yeah. then I, then I would, you know, like firing someone is not fun. I don't, I don't do these jobs to fire people, but if they're doing a disservice to a child, it's time to say goodbye. Um, but I stress out more about that than anything. And I would lose sleep for a few days. And then the person comes in, and I'm like, listen, we're not going to rehire you. And they're like, okay. And they walk out. <laughs> yes. So it's always, why is it that we spend more time caring about that? And then they, they don't like, I, I know. I think yeah. it's just people who are invested in what they're doing. Don't like doing that. And you're right. Like you, they come in they're like, I mean, I, there's been times where I've had to let a coach go and they're like, well, we both saw this coming. And I'm like, Really? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I sit there and I'm like, so I've often said this. I've tried to use that experience with a lot of my teachers, you know, when they're working, when they're talking with parents or anybody, like a lot of times it's, it's harder for you, me, if when you, when you're a certain type of person, I think it's harder for me to say something to someone derogatory, what I perceive as derogatory, than them for, than, than them to hear it. So, mm -hmm. you know, they're kind of, so, you know, sometimes it's, so I've, it's gotten me help. It's given me some help with, you know, trying to help, you know, cause teachers can be very fearful of parents, you know, and, you know, just basically saying something bad about the child, like something that may have been a conflict or a problem. Right. Um, right. A lot of times, you know, they're losing where I'm losing sleep over certain things. They're losing sleep over that as well. And, uh, I just kept saying, listen, sometimes it's easier for you to say it, you know, it's easier than for to hear it than you to say it, but you got to say yeah. it. And, and um, I think that's helped me a little bit sleep more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's, those are the things you have to, when you sit in the big chair, you got to make those decisions yep. and that comes with the territory, but it's right. still no fun. Right. And, and ultimately, yeah. like ultimately the goal is making sure that the children get what they need. And yeah. uh, if you're, I think if you're focused on that goal and you have that um, focus, no matter what you do, and uh, you know, you can be successful. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. I, I, Mo, or oh, excuse me, Dr. Edwards, we could uh, keep talking for a long time and catching up, but I really appreciate you spending all this time with me. It's so good to see you, and you too. the success of your book is awesome. And I will. Um, so I'll make sure in my uh, outro, I list where they can find it. And, um, but um, if you want to go ahead and say it's, or go ahead and tell them it's on Amazon, right? Yes. It's called. And the title it is, is, it is what it is. Yes. Um, and um, anyone can email me if they have any, any questions or any, any, you know, information. I they can email me Maureen Edwards, doctor at gmail.com. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a delight to talk to you, Mike. I can't wait to be seeing you in person again. I'll have to get down there soon. I yes. hope and, uh, cheer, cheer on Catholic university. It, Absolutely. Yeah. Place.
Well, so good to see you and enjoy the weekend, Mo. Talk to you yeah. soon. All right. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye. I really enjoyed that conversation with Maureen. It was great to catch up with Mo. Uh, she's one of my favorite people and has an amazing career and is expanding into writing. And, and that book of hers is, is, is a great book. So I, you know, I highly recommend that you dive into that. It's a, it's a wonderful winding story about, uh, you know, a first year teacher as, as she was talking about. So um, again, please, if you get a chance to follow or subscribe the podcast wherever you get your podcast from, whether it's, you know, um, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get it from, uh, make sure you follow and, or, and or subscribe to, to uh, stay up to date. And um, I apologize for the audio on that. Like one of my other podcasts, that audio was a little bit messed up. I was recording at my house on a Saturday morning uh, and you can hear my little yappy dog in the background. Um, funny story about that dog is, when I was coaching in Kentucky uh, at Lindsey Wilson College, he moved in on our front porch as a stray. And uh, we used to love to go fishing in a pond that wasn't too far away. So my kids would jump in my truck and we would drive to the pond to go fishing. And Tebow would race after us, just flying. And one day, one of my sons turns to the other one and says, uh, man, that dog likes to run. And my other son turns back and says, yeah, kind of like Tebow. And then the initial son, the first son says back to me, he's like, yeah, but he can't throw. <laughs> The other son says back to him again, yeah, kind of like Tebow. So uh, so that became the dog's name, Tebow. And I, Tim, I hope you never hear this anecdote or story. I could probably go the rest of my life without without that ever coming out. But um, yeah, we love that dog. He, but he, I didn't love him so much when I heard the recording and all the yapping. So thanks again for listening. Um, if you want to connect with me, it's uh, on Twitter at Coach Mike Gut or uh, you can email me at trustyourcoachgut at gmail.com. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. How are how we doing? And how can I get better? So uh, thanks for all that. Thanks for listening. And remember, trust your coach gut.